South London studios of Voice of Islam. As is the norm, we'll be talking about two topics. The first one is about Gaza and the destruction that uh, Gaza has suffered. And uh, we'll be talking to an expert um, uh, on that uh, situation there. Uh, we, sh- we shall start that segment from 7.30 a.m. onwards, uh, inshallah, God willing. And then from 8.15 a.m. onwards, we will be talking about children living near green and cleaner spaces having stronger bones so those are the two topics uh, that we will discuss today please do join in uh, these discussions by calling us at 0208 6877878 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk and with that assalamu alaikum and, and a very warm welcome to the breakfast show again dr shakil assalamu alaikum and peace be on you and all our listeners thank you very much um for, for joining us again today. Um, before I go into into the headlines, uh, yeah, just uh, um, a little bit of a heads up. We, we, we will be covering uh, a bit of science news as well, so do stay tuned for, uh, uh, for this segment of News and Current Affairs. Leading Monday's Daily Express is the Defence Secretary's warning over a poisonous woke culture he says, is threatening to distract the British Army from protecting the country. Also on page one of the Express is the vigil to mark the first anniversary of teenager Brianna Gray's murder and a story about mobile coverage in rural areas. The Daily Telegraph also leads with Grant Shapps warning of a woke culture in the army, reporting that on Monday he will launch a review into its diversity policies. The paper also features an image of Nicole Schreitzniger, who won Best Performance in Musical at the Watson Stage Awards on Saturday night. On Sunday night, I beg your pardon. This bin also takes the centre stage in The Times, alongside a report about water company bosses being barred from receiving bonuses if the company is found to commit criminal acts of pollution. Um, a wave of a wave from the king leads the sun the sun this monday snapped as he 
uh, stepped out to attend church. It was his first outing since his cancer diagnosis was announced last week. The donking of West Ham by Arsenal on Sunday in the Premier League also features on the front page, accompanied by a photo of Bokeh Osaka celebrating one of his two goals. The Arsenal victory is on the front page of the Daily Mirror too, but top build is an interview with Alex Patty. The teenager was abducted six years ago and in December was found in rural France, having abandoned the um, the and the great lifestyle pursued by his mother and grandfather. The Guardian leads with a report into the international students of UK universities seeking to clear their names after more than 35,000 were accused of cheating, leading to some being expelled and deported. The paper says thousands of former students maintain their innocence and more than 3,600 have won appeals against the Home Office. An image of aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales is on the front page of the Financial Times, accompanying a report from the ship being delayed from attending NATO exercises. A report on U.S. election polling asks which camps frontrunner Joe Biden, which camps um, uh, has the frontrunner, either Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump, and is more trusted with the country's economy, with an 11-point lead respondents chose Mr. Trump. Also reporting on the U.S. election is the Metro, which writes that a battle has erupted between Trump and Biden over the former's comments that suggested he would encourage Russia to invade its neighbor if they hadn't paid their share of NATO's budget. Biden's office has labeled the comments unhinged, the report said. A secret recording of a Labour candidate's opinion of Israel's war in Gaza prompts the Daily Mail's cover story, which reports critics of the party question its stance on anti-Semitism. Amelia Fox, star of BBC drama Silent Witness, also takes the front page with a story on her on-screen fashion. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. And before I hand uh, the mic over to um, Dr. Shakir to talk about science, a reminder of the two topics. The first one is about the destruction of uh, of buildings um, and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. We shall start at, at 7.30 a.m. And the second topic, starting at 8.15 a.m., is about children living near green and cleaner spaces having stronger bones. So those are the two topics. Again, the number to call is 0208-687-7878. Dr. Shaquille, eagerly waiting for what you have to talk to us today about. Well, it's the search for a fifth force. That's hit the science news headlines in the recent weeks. Research coming from Heidelberg University in Germany. Um, And it's about quintessence. So quint five essence essential so the fifth essential and as you know the standard model in particle physics explains that there are traditionally there were four fundamental forces correct that would affect all the carrier particles and uh, the interaction of matter with each other or matter and energy interchange those four fundamental forces that have been known to science for uh, some decades are the strong and the weak nuclear forces the electromagnetic force, and the gravitational force. And it is understood that these four forces have played the key role in the creation of the universe and its expansion and everything. So what they're saying is that even though almost all the known interactions are explainable by these four forces, 
But the expansion of the universe is not fully explained in scientific experiments or empirically yet by the, these four forces. And hence, the search of a fifth force, which has been kind of postulated over a number of years, but they have the Heidelberg University have increased their experimental evidence searching for this force. Now, we know the um, nickname of dark energy, just mm. like we know of dark mass or dark matter existence. Uh, and they're saying that it may be that it is the dark energy that has been responsible for the expansion of universe. But at the same time, they're saying that up till now, whatever experimentation has been carried out has failed to provide evidence for the search of this fifth force, the fifth essential quintessence, as they call it. Now, interestingly, it links to um, a 1979 Nobel Prize for Physics, yes. which was won by three scientists, Abdus Salam, who was an Ahmadi Muslim scientist uh, based here at Imperial College in London, and two of the other colleagues, Steven Weinberg and Sheldon Glasshow. And what they demonstrated was that the two of those four forces, electromagnetic and the weak nuclear forces, were in fact two manifestations of the same underlying force. So that theory started to be called as the electroweak theory from the combination of the two names, the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force. And this theory got them the Nobel Prize and it was ultimately confirmed in 1983 when the W and the Z bosons were discovered in CERN, which as you know is a large hadron collider uh, in Geneva, in Switzerland. Uh, the theory, interestingly, also predicted a very unique kind of a particle, the Higgs boson, which was also nicknamed as the God particle. And the reason it got this name is that the, the, this is the particle when it interacts with other energy particles, it, they get some mass to it, to themselves. So that is why, because the mass creation is explained by the interaction of energy particles with the Higgs field energy, that is why it's called the God particle. Right. So despite, interestingly, despite there being this popular notion that the more we understand science, it takes us away from God, yeah. in fact, scientists cannot help but think of God somehow in the process of creation. Correct. Um, and they also found that the greater the binding capacity of an energy field with the Higgs, the bigger its mass. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, it is the interaction of all the energy particles with the Higgs that is responsible or it explains scientifically now the formation of all matter in the universe. And they ultimately, again, the, the Hadron Collider in CERN discovered the Higgs boson in 2012. Now, when they carried on this work, interestingly, the unification of the two forces that were postulated by Abdul Salam and his colleagues, and they got the Nobel Prize, went on further. So, ultimately, they have been able to demonstrate that the electroweak force, as well as the strong nuclear force, a third of the first four, 
are also is also the same coming from the same original source as dr abdullah actually suggested initially as well about reunification and and that his concept actually came from tawhid which is about the unity of god that ev- yeah. everything actually is uh, is from god and god is one absolutely right yes and that was the point i was also going to come to but you you're absolutely right sorry to so, steal your thunder <laughs> <laughs> no no absolutely fine uh, and this uh, the three forces coming together was named as the grand unified theory um and like you've said the professor abdul salam in his uh, nobel prize winning dinner speech referred to quranic verses and there were verses that he recited which have instructed us that as much as we try to l- look deeply into any of the universe's creation we will not find any imperfection and that all that we can see or study or experience comes from one original source that is our master creator the almighty right. so the, this referring to these he then explained that as physicists the deeper they seek the more is their wonder excited and the more is their dazzlement um, of their gaze and their need to find that original source oh. and he also besides referring to the unity of godhood and the unity of the being from where all creation comes he extended it as the quran teaches us to the unification of mankind so his idea was and i will read his words on this occasion let me say this to those whom god has given his bounty let us strive to pr- provide equal opportunities to all so that they can engage in the creation of physics and science for the benefit of all mankind so quranic principles we need to acquire knowledge for the benefit of mankind as well as that it should be uh, the benefits of it should be provided to everyone and not just patented for business purposes absolutely i find this topic absolutely fascinating and especially if you look at it in the context of uh, the two things dark matter and dark energy that you mentioned so um they are um uh, they are uh, assumed or postulated to uh, to be 90 95 or 96% of what is all around us um uh, and what what is actually what we can see all around us the you know you myself the stable the chairs the 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 sun and the moon the stars um, and everything else around us that we can actually see or feel or hear through our senses is just 4 or 5% So I mean that just leads me to believe again that the more actually we discover the more we find that we don't know the less we know exactly <laughs> yes yes absolutely it's amazing isn't it the whole uh, creation and despite our advancements of our understanding of nature mm. we realize that there's a lot more that we do not know and I, the message that i take from this is that this human arrogance mm. as if we are everything yeah that needs to be humbled a bit correct that so we, well put absolutely and as long as yeah. we are applying our knowledge and understanding for the benefit of the human race altogether yeah. i think then we are on the right track and continue to search continue our scientific pursuit and after yeah. all again it's a quranic injunction for both men and women yeah. to to acquire knowledge and apply it 
yeah. for the benefit of the human race. I mean, so well put. Absolutely. I mean, if you just think about it, you know, what, 20 years or so ago, even, or probably 25 years ago, we did not know that dark matter or dark energy existed. Um, and we thought that we knew everything. We can, uh, you know, we, we through experimentation, through through science, we, we, you know, we're close to discovering everything. I remember uh, I was growing up and when the Hubble uh, uh, telescope was launched uh, in the um, in the late 80s or early 90s I think it was 91 I think if I remember correctly it was um, it was um, uh, it, it was supposed it was supposed to be a machine or a telescope which was uh, going to take us towards the ends of the universe and to the beginning of time and to the beginnings of Big Bang and lo and behold you know the results that came out was the, were that you know there's a, a, it didn't even go close to uh, to that and now we have another telescope after that so yeah absolutely I mean, it just proves um, how how small we are and how little we know and as you so very very well put that it we've got to be you know this should make us humble humbler rather than more arrogant. Uh, as um, as human race actually, um, unfortunately, the direction that human race unfortunately is going towards. Yes, that that's right. And um, you've reminded me that the Hubble telescope and the experimentation that they derived and the evidence that they did find about the um, the Big Bang process. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, again, scientists, including Stephen Hawking, yeah. um, they termed the origin of that bang, the Big Bang, Mm -hmm. from what they termed as the singularity. So the term, again, that the science used for the original source of the Big Bang, of the creation of the universe, was also about unified original source. Correct. I mean, yeah, you know, you can name it um, whatever name you want to give. You can uh, call that force God. You can call that force a singularity. You can call it whatever you want to. But uh, it... uh, it's really the same force that we are talking about, correct? And um, uh, from which all of these four or five forces that you talked about, and and God knows how many other forces we get to discover. Right, exactly. And and even if there would be ten, hmm. the original source would still, still be, be the one. one. Exactly. That's Absolutely. the interesting point. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Thank you so very much. That's fascinating as always, um, uh, Doctor Shakil. Thank you very much for sharing that bit of news. Right, just in. Um, uh, this morning, Israel has rescued two hostages. Um, so, according to the uh, BBC website, Israel has um, has announced that two male Israeli hostages have indeed been rescued in a raid in Rafah amid reports of heavy Israeli airstrikes on the southern Gaza city. Israeli military says the two men are in good medical condition. Earlier, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society said Rafa was under attack with a number of deaths reported. It follows warnings from the international community over Israel's planned offensive in the city where 1.5 million people are sheltering. Israel said it had conducted strikes in southern Gaza, providing no other details. In a later statement on social media, the Israel Defense Forces said the, that during an overnight joint operation between the IDF and Israeli police, two Israel hostages were rescued. The rescued hostages were then taken to Sheba Medical Center in central Israel for tests. The IDF posted nighttime footage of a helicopter landing at an unspecified location. Defense Minister Yuov Gallant 
described the rescue operation as impressive. He added, we will continue to fulfill our commitment to return the abducted in, in any way. Israeli media reported that the hostages have been held on the second floor of a building in Rafah. Um, according to Armin Eich, who is the acting director at Sheba Medical Center, I'm very happy to announce that this night two released hostages landed here. They were received in our ER examination room and initial examination was conducted by our ER staff and they are in a stable condition. Israel's military launched its operation Gaza Strip after more than 1,200 people um, were killed in southern Israel on 7th October by Hamas gunmen who also took over 240 people as hostage. There are conflicting reports uh, on the uh, number of casualties in the attacks on Gaza. The AFP news agency said 52 Palestinians, including children, were killed, citing Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry. Meanwhile, Reuters put the death toll at 37, also quoting Gaza health officials. On Sunday, the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza said 112 more Palestinians had been killed by the Israeli military over the previous day, bringing the overall death toll to more than 28,100 and more than 67,500 injured. A number of countries and international organizations have warned Israel against conducting its planned offensive in the city, where, as we mentioned earlier, an estimated 1.5 million people are sheltering. Uh, most of them have actually fled from the rest of the Gaza Strip to actually take shelter in Rafah. In other news, um, The Guardian this morning talks about UK's Rwanda bill and deems it incompatible with human rights obligations. So the UK's Rwanda, UK government's controversial Rwanda legislation that deems the African country as a safe place to deport people to its fundamentally incompatible uh, to its fundamentally inca- incompatible with Britain's human rights obligations places it in breach of international law. This, according to a damning parliamentary report talked about by The Guardian this morning, MPs and peers from the cross-party Joint Committee on Human Rights have delivered a critical analysis of the safety bill, of the safety of Rwanda bill, which is progressing at speed through Parliament. The aim of the bill is to counter the judgment of the Supreme Court last November that found Rwanda was not a safe country to which UK asylum seekers could be forcibly removed. The bill seeks um, um, and actually states Rwanda is in fact a safe country and that anyone sent there by the UK government will not be forced to be removed to an unsafe country. The report finds it is unclear whether this can actually be guaranteed in principle. The report is the latest of many from legal and human rights experts condemning the UK government's Rwanda plan and raising questions about whether the policy is safe, viable and compliant with national and international law. Following line-by-line scrutiny of the bill, which reaches reaches its uh, committee stage in the House of Lords on Monday, the report finds that the bill is fundamentally incompatible with the UK's human rights obligations, erodes the protections laid down in the Human Rights Act, contravenes parts of the European Convention on Human Rights, and also falls short of UK's commitment to comply with international treaties. It goes beyond concerns about the Rwanda policy and warns that the government um, and its actions um, disapply certain laws and places the UK's hard-won reputation for the rule of law and human rights in jeopardy. The bill's near-total exclusion of judicial scrutiny seeks to undermine the constitutional role of the domestic courts in holding the executive to account its states. The human rights organisation Liberty gave evidence saying that the, that even if a court heard evidence that 
Rwanda is an unsafe place, it would have to stick its finger into fingers into its ears and pretend that it was. The committee took evidence from legal experts, academics and NGOs. The, over, the overwhelming majority said that the bill was not compatible with human rights laws. So that's something that's carried by The Guardian this morning. Right, so that was our segment on news and current affairs this morning. A reminder of the two topics that we shall discuss. So uh, in about uh, four minutes' time, we shall start talking about the first topic, which is about the destruction and damage in Gaza. And then from 8.15 a.m. onwards, we shall be talking about children living near green and cleaner spaces having stronger bones. Please do stay tuned. We shall be back right after these quick messages. of Islam Radio. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbours. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbours with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasised consideration towards one neighbours so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbour would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Zar peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbour might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbour should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favourite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one, and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbour. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbour is not secure against injury and ill-treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbour. He asked people not to object to their neighbours driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. 
Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the day of judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to Daniel Zah and Dr. Shaquil Ahmed. The time is 7.30 and we're about to delve into the first topic of the morning. Uh, Dr. Shaquil, what are we talking about? So this segment, our subjects that over 50% of structures in Gaza have suffered damage or destruction. So the focus of our discussion is more about the structural damages, the infrastructure, the buildings, the um, essentials that people require in terms of physical structure in in an establishment. So the gist is that Israel has intensified its offensive on Khan Yunus, Palestinians in Gaza have spoken for their fears of the future because now there is uh, consideration that maybe the ground offensive will go down to Rafah. Some of the heaviest battles in Gaza in recent days have been around Khan Yunus. And a recent analysis with drone images have found that at least half of the Gaza infrastructure has been destroyed by now. More than half of Gaza's buildings have been damaged or destroyed since Israel launched its uh, retaliation. And this is according to the new analysis presented by the BBC. Israel has been constantly asking Gazans to move south for their safety. Across Gaza, residential areas have been left ruined. Previously busy shopping streets have been reduced to rubble. Universities have been destroyed. Hospitals have been destroyed. Religious institutions, mosques and churches have been destroyed. Farmlands have been churned up. About 1.7 million people, which is more than 80% of Gaza population, are now displaced. And nearly half of this displaced population is crammed in far southern end of the Strip, according to the United Nations. Gaza is home to some of the oldest churches and mosques in the world, and many of them have not escaped this widespread destruction. According to the BBC, um, confirmation of the 117 religious sites which were reportedly damaged, they have the BBC analysis has verified the destruction of 74. And the BBC used satellite imagery and user-generated content to examine evidence from both before and after the buildings were hit by this ground offensive. And the Israel Defense Force, the IDF, say that Hamas fighters are using places of worship for cover, but Hamas is denying this allegation. According to the International Humanitarian Law, intentionally targeting religious buildings during conflict is a war crime. 
There is an exception, however, if such sites are being used for military purposes. Thank you very much for that. Um, and with that introduction, let's go straight to our first guest of this morning, who is Professor Neve Gordon. Um, Professor Gordon, after teaching for teaching for 17 years at Ben Gurion University in Israel, uh, joined the School of Law at the Queen Mary University of London. His research focuses on international humanitarian law, human rights, the ethics of violence, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Breakfast Show. Professor Gordon, can you hear us? Yes, yes. Thank Excellent. you for having me. Excellent. Well, lovely to have you, uh, Professor Gordon. So l- if I can start by asking you, Professor, close to 390 people, 391, if I, uh, um, I think was the last number when I looked at it, um, have been killed in the West Bank. And over 6,000 actually have been taken as prisoners where there is actually no Hamas. You've uh, uh, written um, uh, about this. You've written about Israel's occupation, which talks about the first complete, which is actually the first complete history of Israel's occupation of the West Bank. Um, Can you shed some light of um, what I'm really interested in finding out? What is the day-to-day life like for people living in the West Bank? So... uh um th- first thanks so much for the question i think there was there is hamas does exist in the in the west bank it's not that hamas does not exist in the west bank but what we've been seeing uh over the years but in much greater force after october 7th is actually the ethnic ethnic cleansing of certain communities in the West Bank, I think there's almost 20 communities, small communities of sometimes just over 100 people, where uh, Jewish settlers, Israeli settlers, uh, terrorize them. Um, they threaten to kill them. They they uproot their olive trees. They confiscate and expropriate their sheep. And, and, and flocks and they come into their small villages and terrorize the population until the, the community decides to leave and so we have monitored around 20 communities that have uh, left their homes following October 7th we should add that also at the same time Israel has been approving uh, Jewish settlements in occupied East Jerusalem, Mm. which was historically also part of the West Bank. And so you have now uh, four whole neighborhoods that have been approved for establishment in the middle of Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. So as the Palestinians are being displaced uh, as in the Gaza Strip from the north to the south with the over 1.7 million people out of 2.3 million losing their homes and, and moving to the south to save themselves, we have the, uh, the, the Jewish settlers in the West Bank taking over uh, communities uh, there. Right. So, if I can go back to the question that I asked, so what uh, what challenges 
does that present uh, the settlements, um, uh, the roadblocks to the people living in West Bank on a day-to-day basis? So the the in the West Bank now there's about six hundred thousand Jewish settlers. <clears throat> who have expropriated Palestinian land, about 40-50% of Palestinian West Bank land has been taken over by the settlers. They have built roads which the Palestinians cannot go, cannot travel on, and, and these roads often go around the Palestinian villages and the, the, the land that has been expropriated is around the Palestinian villages. So basically, the West Bank, instead of being a contiguous territory, is is made out of an archipelago of islands mm-hmm. where Palestinians that are trying to get to their work or trying to get to school or trying to visit relatives to get to the hospital have to uh, often go through checkpoints, have to often go through places that are unsafe for them because of the uh, settler population. Uh, life in the West Bank is, I mean, like the GDP per capita in the West Bank is probably around $2,500, uh, whereas in Israel it's over $50,000. The life expectancy, if you're born in the West Bank as a Palestinian, is about uh, seven, eight years less than if you're born 20 minutes away as an Israeli Jew. Uh, the healthcare facilities, the school facilities, everything is, is not in good shape. And so life is, is, is what it means living under military rule with a settled population all around you. Why do you think the international community continues to allow this sort of Israeli behavior? There are many, many reasons for uh, the kind of alliance between, I don't, I don't know I would, that I would call it the international community, I would say the, the, the Western powers, hmm. between the Western powers and Israel. I mean, um, there is the idea that the 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 there's a Christ, there's a bond between the christian dispensationalists who believe that all jews must reach israel and then must convert before the 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 second coming of of christ so there's zionist evangelicals we have uh, the, the, the there's a kind of Islamophobia among many Western leaders that they seem to align with Israel. There's this idea that Israel is a kind of Western bastion in the in the in the in the jungle, quote unquote, of the Middle East. Um, there's the uh, idea of certain geopolitical interests that certain leaders believe that Israel is uh, uh, advancing their interests. So there's a whole array of interests 
where um and 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 maybe I should add also that like when when here in the UK uh Balfour promised uh what was Palestine then as a homeland to the Jews part of that was a way of overcoming what was called at the time the Jewish problem. I mean, a lot of Europeans wanted to get rid of the Jews from Europe and thought that Palestine would be the best place. So there was a certain kind of anti-Semitism with the idea that Israel would become the homeland from the, for the Jews because the the before World War Two. Uh, uh, this was a way of of figuring out uh, how to resolve the Jewish problem. And then after World War II, uh, it was the Europeans that perpetrated the crimes against the Jews, killing six million Jews. But then the solution for that crime was not resettling the Jews within Europe, but actually offering them a homeland in Palestine at the expense of the Palestinians. So the the Jews were a persecuted people in Europe, but instead of dealing with their own persecution, uh, uh, the Palestinians had to pay the price. Professor, you talked about settlements in the West Bank. Uh, would you agree that these settlements, 600,000 settlers and the archipelago of these settlements, as you mentioned, uh, renders the two-state solution totally um, uh, impossible? In politics, I don't like to use the word totally, but I think <laughs> you are right. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely. And and just to give an example so your listeners would get a sense, in 2005, Israel withdrew its settlements uh, from the Gaza Strip. There were 8,000 settlers there. And it became a national trauma to remove them. At the time, the prime minister was Sharon, and the same Sharon that had built uh, close to a million apartments or hundreds of thousands of apartments in order to absorb Jews from the former Soviet Union did not build housing for many of these settlers after they were withdrew from the Gaza Strip for several years to help precipitate this kind of national trauma that we cannot move from the Gaza Strip. In Gaza, there were 8,000 settlers. In the West Bank, dispersed throughout the West Bank, there's 600,000 settlers. 600,000 settlers is is about 10% of the Jewish population of Israel. To remove them from their homes at this point would be very difficult politically, uh, almost impossible, as you intimate. And Professor, recently you wrote an article about why Israel's bombing Gaza's ambulances. Can you please tell us a little more about this? Well, you know, the article is 
is recent. It's from the 10th of November. That's what, two two months ago, three months ago. Um, But things have been moving so fast in the Gaza Strip and the situation is so dire in the Gaza Strip that that in a way it's a bit odd but the, the what i was trying to explain in that article is what does israel want to achieve or what do the different camps within israel want to achieve and what has been going on in israel in the past month since october 7th has been that the israelis have um, experienced pain on October 7th, experienced fear, and are now uh, and have been for the past several months on a kind of mission of genocidal retribution, whereby uh, they, the, gov- the, the military is, as, as the presenter at the beginning of the show noted, has been bombing the Gaza Strip using tens of thousands of bombs uh, within a very short period, rendering uh, the majority now of apartments unlivable, the majority of the hospitals inoperable. We have almost uh, half the schools in the Gaza Strip have been damaged with 30% of them uh, not being operable even after the fighting subsides. So we have hundreds of thousands of school children that have have not been to school and have been traumatized for the past four months, even after the ceasefire will take force, which I don't know when that will be. But even after that will take force, they won't have a school to return to. We have hundreds of thousands of chronically ill patients that there's no one that can treat them, that we have, uh, uh, I think, a couple of hundred mosques that have been destroyed. And among that, of course, are the ambulances and, and, and the medical staff and so forth. What we see is that there is no distinction between uh, civilians and, and combatants, between civilian objects and military targets, and basically large parts of the Gaza Strip have been turned into rubble. And, and, and for many Israelis, that is a kind of part of the retribution for the October 7th attacks. Uh, and they're not seeing it, they're unwilling to see it, and, and it, it is really catastrophic. Um, I, I, uh, the, and so there is a kind of agreement around that. The disagreement among Israelis is what next? The ultra-right settlers want to resettle the Gaza Strip. They want to displace the Palestinians. I don't know to where uh, uh, over international borders, but it's clear the Egyptians do not want them. Uh, and uh, and be, basically, sorry, professor, so, that would so, be uh, ethnic cleansing, wouldn't? Uh, do Do you think th- that sort of thing can is still thinkable in twenty twenty four, after what, uh, especially what the ICJ actually 
said in terms of a plausible genocide? Whether it's still thinkable, here we are talking about it. So thinkable, <laughs> sure. thinkable right. for sure it is. And, and I think it is still, uh, yes, I actually do think it is still a threat. I think Netanyahu is now saying, despite what all the Western world leaders have intimated, he's saying he's going to pursue going into Rafah. Rafah is 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 a small area that now there's almost 1.5 million people living there, mostly in tents. I think it's probably around the area of Heathrow Airport. Imagine Heathrow Airport with 1.5 million people in it living in tents and the troops need to enter. It's going to create a catastrophe. So, yes, I think we... we as you intimated, these are, are crimes, these are collective punishment, these are crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, uh, displacement and ethnic cleansing, and, and, and genocidal violence. All of that is taking place as we speak right now, yes, and it's, uh, it's unthinkable, but it, it is what it is. That's what's going on. That's why we, we need to raise our voices and, and call on our governments to say enough is enough. So, Professor, I, we know that your primary research focuses on international humanitarian law and human rights. Uh, and uh, thank you for sharing your views there. But um, just uh, towards the end, uh, from a political understanding perspective, so are we facing a situation where the unstated intention is to rid Gaza of the Palestinians and somehow amalgamate it into occupied land? I think that that there's a disagreement about that. I think that within the Israeli uh, political arena, there are polit ministers such as uh, Bezalel Smutrich and Ben Gvir who would agree with that utterance and would like to actually, and have said uh, Gaza is now 2 million people, it should be reduced to 200,000 people and we should uh, 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 resettle the Gaza Strip. Utterances like that. So it's very clear uh, what their agenda is. I think the majority of the both the ruling elite and the population uh, do not think that is feasible. They might have wanted that, but they don't think that that is something that is feasible. But they do not know how to to move forward. I I would like to 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 end maybe with with an alternative because there is an alternative despite all this madness, despite the, what what is going on, the genocide going on in the Gaza Strip. There is an alternative, and the alternative is a democracy, a state for all its citizens, where Palestinians and, and Jews have equal citizen rights from the river to the sea. So when people go on the protest, and the slogan is, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The way I understand that, po that, that slogan is that currently there is 
one supreme authority from the river to the sea, and that is the Israeli government. And it is a regime that gives privilege to the Jewish citizenry that holds on uh, to, to about 5 million Palestinians as stateless, without rights, and another 2 million Palestinians as second-class citizens. And within this area, what we need to do is we, we need to reconfigure yeah. the political relations so that human rights are allocated equally among the whole population, that citizen rights are are allocated equally among the whole population, and that we have a democracy where Jews and Palestinians live by side, side by side as equal citizens. Now, this might seem very far-fetched at this current <laughs> moment, but I think it's the only possibility of a non-violent future in the region. And I think that's what we need to try to attain. Professor, do you think, sorry, a couple of more questions, Professor, before we let you go. Um, uh, this is this is uh, hugely interesting, and I'm sure to our listeners as well, uh, not to mention educational. In terms of real politic, do you think the solution that you're talking about in terms of one state uh, with it w- will actually lead Israel to lose its Jewish identity because of the just because of sheer numbers of uh, of Palestinians that uh, or, or Muslims that there will be in that state. Do you think that that solution is even more far-fetched then than the two-state solution? I think that that the the materiality of the situation, the geography of the situation is a one state. There is one state on the ground. Now, this state is characterized by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch as an apartheid regime. So the question is, do we take this one state and, and separate it and make it into two states? And that Or do we take this one state and democratize it? That is your question. And what is more far-fetched? So it would seem to me, I don't know which one is more far-fetched. I think the, it, what I, I think it would be extremely difficult to move 600,000 settlers. I think it would be extremely difficult. My, Solution. I think my solution is more moral than the two-state solution. I think it is about seeing all of us as first and foremost as human beings. And uh, I don't think that I think the, the Jewish character of the state, that it is a state that privileges the Jew, yes, that we will have to 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 give that up, but the the state and and can have different Jewish characters. The holidays can be uh, celebrated, and can be uh, uh, days of rest and and so forth. So one does it's not a call to give up Judaism and to give up the possibility of practicing Judaism within this state, but it is a call for treating our fellow human beings as equals, which I think is what we need to aspire for. 
What is more difficult, I think, within this current situation, both are extremely difficult and uh, both would take a lot of effort and a lot of will to get to. Right. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions um, on that, uh, Professor, as well, but we are coming up to uh, the clock news and we need to take a short break. Uh, can I request to you to just stay on the line and um, we will come back to you after the, the news break. Would that be all right, sir? Sure. Thank you very much. Sir. Um, so that's, uh, we're talking to Professor Neve Gordon, who is uh, a professor at the School of Law at the Queen Mary University in London. And he's taught uh, before that at the Ben Gurion University in Israel for over 17 years. His research focuses on international human humanitarian law, human rights, the ethics of violence and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We are now coming up uh, to the news break. Um, we will take a break for that. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Professor Neve Gordon. Do stay tuned. Um, and a reminder of the second topic that we shall talk about starting 8.15 a.m. onwards, uh, and that's about children living near green and cleaner spaces having stronger bones. So do stay tuned for that as well. The number to call should you want to join in this discussion, this is a live show, is 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back after these messages and the news. Do stay tuned. Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. We are, before um, we went to the break, have been talking to Professor Neve Gordon, who is um, uh, a professor at the School of Law at the Queen Mary University of London. And before that, he taught for 17 years at the Ben Gurion University in Israel. Professor, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much for me. staying on the line, Professor. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, Professor, while uh, we were on the news break, we were actually having a, a discussion um, uh, off, um, uh, off the mic, of course. Like, where are you originally uh, from, Doctor? Uh, are you from, uh, your, your accent is, it sounds like half American, half Italian, half English. Is that, is that correct? A Middle Eastern accent. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> I'm. I was born and uh, grew up in Israel. I did do my doctoral degree in the United States, so that's uh, 
but uh, I'm Israeli. Uh, sure. Okay. Now, yeah, absolutely. So we got we got some okay. part of that right there. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again, Doctor. So, Professor. Um, uh, we were talking about, um, uh, Rafa, we were talking about uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, one question that uh, that often is is debated in, in the media is about the Rafa border crossing between Egypt and the Gaza Strip. And if you ask the Israeli government uh, official um uh, standpoint, and I've heard many uh, former Israeli government officials on the media talking about it as well, especially in the context of the blockade that existed for uh, for many many years in Gaza before this um, uh, this war actually broke out. Um, that that particular border was not controlled by Israel, and therefore uh, there was no blockade. Uh, the other side, yes, the, the seaside was blocked, uh, the air uh, fields were blocked as well, and the other borders as well, but not the Rafa border crossing. Uh, what is the truth to that? Well, just look at the humanitarian aid now. If the border were totally controlled by Egypt, they'd allowed as much humanitarian aid as as could to go in from the southern border. Israel still has some control of that border and does not allow uh, the movement of either people or goods uh, or has some control on over the movement of of people or goods. Otherwise, um, Israel would say the Palestinians then can move in and out as much as they want, and Israel doesn't want that. So it's in terms of the just in terms of some of the Oslo agreements, Israel still controls the registry of the population in the Gaza Strip. So the it's not as if that border is a kind of total Egyptian controlled border. There is an agreement where Israel has a say about that border. All right. Thank you very much for clarifying that. Um the the situation in in uh, in the West Bank, um the living conditions of the Palestinians there are often described as apartheid. Again, this is controversial. What are your views on that? I don't think it's controversial. I don't think anyone hardly thinks it's controversial about the West Bank. I think that uh, we have one space. Think about it this way. There's one space. There's two people living in that one space, the, the settlers and the indigenous population. Palestinians. The, the settlers live under Israeli civil, civil law and criminal law, and the Palestinians live under uh, uh, basically military rule, which is military law. So you have two people, to, you have a single space with two legal systems that are controlling the people, one dedicated to the Jews, the other to the Palestinians. So there's no better def definition than apartheid than that. Um, um, so I don't think, I think where, where there is a 
controversy in a, or a conversation, whether it's an apartheid or not, is within Israel and in relation to the Palestinian citizens of Israel. I think in relation to the stateless Palestinians in the West Bank, the, the very few people would say that it's not organized like an apartheid regime. But let me also say that the apartheid side of it is is in itself a symptom of settler colonialism. Mm. It is not uh, 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 the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is the fact that Jewish settlers were moved into the West Bank and then you have two peoples where one regime wants to privilege one group rather than the other, and you end up with apartheid. But it's the settler drive that created the apartheid. And finally, Professor, um, what are your thoughts on the stability of the Netanyahu government, given that over 100 hostages uh, are still uh, they, they got two released, uh, they announced this morning. Um, but we've got quite a few hostages still there. There is There are protests inside Israel as well. Your thoughts on how stable this government is and, and, and the prospects for the Netanyahu government? So Netanyahu is now receiving between 16 and 18 seats in the polls, according to predictions, out of 120 seats. So he's very, very weak on that side. Uh, The Israeli public, much of it, blame him not only uh, for not releasing the hostages, but also for the whole uh, October 7 attacks against Israel, and before that they blamed him for the judicial overall. So the, the, the majority of the Israeli population, I think, clearly no longer uh, supports Netanyahu. Netanyahu, and that is part of the problem, there's also three or four trial, corruption trials against Netanyahu that have been ongoing for, for a long period before October 7th, and, and Netanyahu knows that uh, the only way out of these trials and the only way that he can try to uh, save some kind of face for himself is to, to, to continue being in power. And the only way for him to continue being in power is for the war to go on. And so Netanyahu has now a personal interest in sustaining the war and not suspending hostilities, not calling for a ceasefire. And that is what is so dangerous here. Because I think the moment there will be a ceasefire, the Israeli public will want to, will want to an account from Netanyahu. And, and the government's ability to sustain that will, will probably it probably won't be able to sustain that. So we have this kind of tension now going on with West Bank, with Western leaders beginning finally after uh, close to 30,000 confirmed death and another 7,000 probably under the rubbles, uh, uh, 
starting to pressure a bit the government, the Israeli government, to stop hostilities and suspend uh, suspend all the hostilities. At the same time, Netanyahu is saying he's going to push forward because he knows that he needs this war to keep in power, and that's a very dangerous situation to be in. Professor Neil Gordon, such a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, Really a delightful um, uh, interview there. Thank you very much once again for your time. Have a lovely day. Have a lovely rest of the week. Peace be with you. Thank you and peace be with you. Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. So that was uh, Professor Neve Gordon, who is a professor of law at the um, School of Law at Queen Mary University in um, uh, in Queen Mary University of London. Right. Um, Dr. Shakil, we're coming to the end uh, of the segment. Uh, one um, phrase that was mentioned by Professor Gordon there was uh, a moral solution. In terms of uh, what Islam uh, prescribes in terms of justice and morality, what are your thoughts on how um, this situation, um, uh, how how best to handle the situation and what solutions does Islam present uh, to, to, um, to end this decades-old conflict? Um, yes, a very important point. Uh, there, look, it's very clear. The term Islam means peace. And every teaching of the Holy Quran, whether it's from a political, economic, or human rights perspective, it is to support the development of peace in a society. So Islam is not a religion of violence or bloodshed. It does not teach the use of force to conquer lands. And neither does Islam condone compelling others to accept its teachings. So Islam, in fact, gives freedom of conscience to people. And in fact, the the governance system within Islam, even for non-Muslim citizens, is based on the principles of secularism. People are free to choose their religion, practice their religion, and are supported by the Islamic government. Now, that's the Quranic teaching. Yes, it is also acceptable and heartbreaking for us as Muslims that some Islamic governments do not follow these teachings in a correct manner. But again, coming back to the teachings of Islam, it's a religion that says that no amount of enmity should contravene the acting of the government with justice. So despite facing adversity and enmity, the principles of absolute justice must be upheld. Whenever justice is spoken of in the Holy Quran, in fact, the phrase absolute justice is emphasized. Islam is a religion which says that if God has not compelled people to act in a certain way, in more than one Quranic verse, that's what the Holy Quran says, then who are we as human beings to force people to do it this way or that way? So moving people out of homes or uh, attacking civilians, uh, the people who are not combatants, women, children, old people, sick people, uh, buildings where healthcare is provided, buildings for education or religious education. None of these is permitted, according to Islamic warfare, to be assaulted, damaged or attacked. In fact, even the food sources for enemies are not to be destroyed or destruction. And uh, the... um, 
the um, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, the spiritual head and the Khalifa of Islam and head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he was also very clear when the war began, he condemned the atrocities or the killing of innocent on both sides, including by Hamas in Israel and by Israel in Gaza. And he said that if there is a political conflict, then it should be restricted to the combatants only. Right. Thank you very, very much for that, Dr. Shaquille. And that concludes our discussion on the first segment and quickly moving on to the second segment now, which is about children living near greener and cleaner spaces have stronger bones. So uh, this is um, something which uh, which actually has been uh, talked about in the media recently. And uh, we thought that it would be a good discussion to have. And in this discussion, we will link uh, the green spaces and children having stronger bones. Children with more greener spaces have uh, been found uh, in a study to have stronger bones. And this can potentially lead to lifelong health benefits. So scientists found that the children living in places with 20 to 25% more natural natural areas had increased bone strength that was equivalent to half a year's natural growth. Uh, we will also be talking about uh, the linkage between cleanliness and the effect that can has uh, can have on health. Um, so as mentioned before, this, a study has found the children living in areas with 20 to 25 percent more natural areas have significantly stronger bones leading to lifelong health benefits. This is because bone strength grows in childhood and adolescence, plateauing around 50 and then declining. Increasing green spaces could prevent prevent fractures and osteoporosis in older people. Green spaces with trees are linked, uh, therefore, to stronger bones um, because this stimulates bone growth and the stronger the bone mass during childhood, the more capacity children then have for later life. Let's now go uh, straight to our uh, first expert for this segment, who is um, uh, Miss Ingrid Skills. Ingrid is one of the co-founding parents of Playing Out back uh, Playing Out back in 2011 and currently works with the organization as an associate and board member to support Playing Out's work out in the world. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Morning, and with you. Thank you very, very much. Really pleasure to have you, um, Ingrid. Um, Ingrid, uh, tell us a little bit about Playing Out. Well, Playing Out is an organisation that myself and a few friends founded back in 2011 um, as a response, really, to what we were experiencing with our own children when they were small. So basically, all of us, um, had grown up, perhaps like many of your listeners, playing outside, being a very natural, everyday part of our lives. So we'd come home from school, we'd dump our bags, we'd go outside and we'd play for, for the rest of the day. And that was the same at weekends and school holidays. So we had this whole outside life um, where we, we had so much really as children. This was how we were physically active. It's how we made friends and learned how to socialize. We learned how to take risks and to solve problems. And we learned how to be independent and belong to our communities and know our neighbors. Um, And also there was a lot of joy and a lot of fun. 
And by the time, sort of fast forward 20 years, by the time when my children were small and my friends' children were small, a massive shift seems to have happened whereby children just don't have that anymore on the whole. So what life seemed to be like was, well, you could walk your children to the park or they could go and play at a friend's house or, you know, if you've got a car or you've got the money, you can kind of sign your children up for clubs and activities. But the free, and that's free of cost as well, free, you know, outside play without an adult telling you what to do, that daily uh, reality had gone. And so my friends and I were trying to find a way for our children to get some of that back. Um, and cut a long story short, we tried lots of different things. We'd meet up and go to the park together. We'd ask our school to take children out more. But eventually, two of my friends who live around the corner had the idea to close their street for a few hours after school, as if for a street party, but actually just open the space up for play for children and communities. And it was amazing. And that was how Playing Out started and the idea began to spread. Thank you for that introduction. Now, you've been championing this Playing Out idea for the children, but uh, challenges faced by your organisation and how do you attempt to overcome them? Well, at the level of kind of um, parents and residents who, who feel the same way we do, that children just need more of this simple freedom, um, our idea is, is spread around the UK and to other countries and we basically offer support so people can close their street up to once a week and give children, reclaim a little bit of space back for children, I suppose. But, and that's hard work, but it's basically really positive. The challenges are more around why can't children play out anymore? What has changed over in my lifetime, basically, which means this huge shift has happened? And... You know, a lot of people kind of say, oh, it's lazy parents, it's lazy children, or they blame screens. But actually, the environment um, is something that has massively changed for children. It's become much less friendly and much less safe. And those are the big challenges. So traffic, for example, has more than doubled since I was a little girl. Cars have changed. The way people drive has changed. And streets are really, really unsafe for children. And then if you add in things like no ball game signs that have gone up everywhere, um, the fact that bits of, of green space are being built on and sold off um, or privatised, um, and also just people's kind of tolerance of children playing seems to have changed. So you get people phoning police because there are children making too much noise playing out. Um, it's kind of... And it can be labelled officially if you're in social housing. You, you, it can be called antisocial behaviour. And it's kind of crazy if we've got to a point where children's health, physical health, mental health is in so much difficulty. And yet if they're out playing, yes, it can be noisy. Yes, it can be irritating. But that is labelled as antisocial behaviour and they're told to go in uh, when actually it needs discussion with the neighbours and sorting out in a different way so that everyone can be happy with the result. So those are the challenges we face. More, they're more about challenges in the outside world around children and play. And I suppose the other challenge is that apart from some organisations and experts like us, nobody really talks about this shift. They talk about children's health, children's mental health being in a terrible state, but they don't actually talk about how the outside environment has changed and how we have to 
do something about that so that children can once again belong in the streets and places where they live and have friends and move and get around and be healthy, um, as you were just talking about. And this um, idea of blocking streets every now and then, has that uh, been practically taken up, do you think, in some part of the country? Yes, it has a lot, actually. So since we set up the idea, we're in Bristol, and the idea kind of started to spread in Bristol because people saw it on my friend's street and were like, oh, can I do that thing? You know, and it kind of spread a bit like that. And then we eventually set up a website and formed an organisation and it just started to spread around the country. So over 1,600 street communities have regularly played out like that, I suppose, created space for children and adults, actually, adult neighbours of different ages, different backgrounds to come together. Mm. Um, And the idea spread to some different countries around the world as well. So it's become quite a big movement and in a way that's what gives us at playing out the platform to call for some of these bigger changes because we know that parents are really worried and we know that many parents you know want to try and get that freedom for their children and I don't know um I don't know if you know but there's actually an inquiry happening at the moment a a parliamentary inquiry into this exact issue and we and some other organizations wrote in and asked for it to happen and they said yes which was quite incredible um so there's a a, the parliamentary um select committee into leveling up housing and communities they're holding an inquiry right now into children in the built environment which basically means children and their lives outside are they out there enough you know why aren't they what are the barriers what are the benefits if they are and what should government be doing about it so it's a really important exciting moment for us because we and other organizations are going well this is what you need to do Hmm. um and yeah we hope that some really good recommendations will come out of that because a play street is brilliant you know a couple of hours a week getting everybody outside to play but it is not the answer yes it does sound like a very interesting idea and uh, uh, when are you expecting the results or outcome from this parliamentary inquiry so um the next sort of oral evidence session you know where people go and give evidence is in a couple of weeks and then um it reports i think sort of late mid to late spring and there should be recommendations coming out of that which we hope will be things like let's calm traffic down in streets where children live you know 20 miles an hour is absolutely what makes the difference to a street being safer for children to get around to it not being Mm. safe get rid of no ball game signs um stop building on parks and selling off bits of space that children need and just we just want there to be a public education campaign around it as well because a lot of people maybe haven't thought about this issue and yet it's massive for children. Yes, absolutely. Public education is key in this respect and uh, um, you're coming over and accepting the, our invitation. I mean, I, I suppose it's uh, part of that uh, effort to make people aware. Um, do you think the local governments have been supportive when uh, communities have requested for street blocking uh, periods yeah. during the week? Yeah, well, that's a yeah, very uh, important question because it, all local authorities are very different. Each one is very different. So some are amazing, like Leeds has been absolutely brilliant and got right behind it and said, yes, this is what children need. And they've done loads to help 
help make things happen. Others um, are kind of a bit neutral and, and, you know, won't really do something about it unless there's a lot of residents asking for it or a bit of pressure. And others, unfortunately, have just said, no, we're not allowing that. We're not allowing that. Um, and it's really disappointing because it's something that it's, it's relatively easy and cheap to do. I mean, it's cost-free for a resident and for a local authority, they just have to have an application process that they manage. And other than that, uh, it's not really a big ask, but the gains for children and communities are, are massive. So we really hope that the government, out of this inquiry and this report, we hope that one of the recommendations will be, right, all local authorities, this is a really good thing to allow just put the paperwork in place and let people do it. That does sound like uh, it would be a very interesting outcome. And um, I was not aware of your organisation, but having listened to the points that you've made, um, I'm keen to see that change happening in the country so that we can have more children feeling safe and free when they're playing outside. Um, long-term goals for your organisation, if you can share them with us. and Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the sort of longest term goal, and this is probably the same for any campaigner, is your sort of the long term goal that keeps you going is is the the total vision of yep, yeah, children are free, they're safe, they're outside, they're active, they've got friends, they're ha- happier again. You know, we've got some of the the most unhappy children in the developed world in the UK, and that's a that's a terrible thing to have to say. So I think the, the big how do we is, how do we know that uh, is the reality? How do we get to that uh, fig um, that statement? Um, there's research done every couple of years that kind of lists countries in order of of what how children say they feel, and unfortunately, we are quite near the bottom. Um, I can't remember right. the actual thing, but I can send it to you afterwards. Yeah, it's very. Um, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's, that's a sad thing I, to know, living in yes, Britain and uh, it, being parents. Yes, it's a very sad thing. And it's also, I think, a shameful thing because, um, you know, I think it was Nelson Mandela that said there's no kind of greater insight into a country than the, than the sort of health and happiness of its children. And I think that our country really needs to look long and hard at what our children's lives are like. You know, it's a lot of pressure um, with exams and the school system. And then there's not the kind of release of being outside and freedom and play and friendship. And all the pressures put on parents, you know, parents have to entertain. Parents have to drive children to places. They have to fill their days with activities. And that's that's a lot of pressure on parents who are working. And actually, Mm. you know... So I suppose big picture, our aim is for that to change massively. But more pragmatically, it would be for the government to actually take this issue seriously. And I think in order for them to do that, they need to have a cabinet member who's responsible for children. I mean, there isn't anyone, uh, you know, a sort of senior minister for children who sits on the cabinet and whenever there are decisions will, will be the person that says, hang on a minute, let's just think about how this will affect children. Because they are, you know, I don't know, quarter of the population. Um, so, yeah, so that would be our mm. big picture aims. And then, as I said, 20 miles an hour on residential streets is really important. I know a lot of people find, as drivers, find it frustrating. But actually, you know, if you're hit by a car at 30 miles an hour, I think it's something like 
you're 80% likely to die as a child. If you're hit by a car at 20 miles an hour, you're 80% likely to survive. So mm. it's a massive difference. Um, yes. Yeah. One of the other distractions that we didn't have as children was the screens. You know, the 300 yeah. TV channels and the, yeah. the, the phones and stuff. Do you face that as a challenge when you're promoting the idea of children being physically active outdoors and having a play and a social bonding in, rather than sitting and doing video games or doing TikToks? Yeah, well, that's a really, really good question. And on the whole, in the kind of media world out there, screens are absolutely the thing that get the blame for children being indoors you know they're kind of it's it's screens that's done all of this change but actually um you know if you in every consultation with children they still say their top thing is i want to play with my friends like the children's commissioner did a, a massive consultation the year after covid and the top thing was we want to play with our friends so children still want that Secondly, you know, when we do play sheets, it's a very good example. All these, you know, 1,600 play sheets that have happened every week, every two weeks, children absolutely love it. And they are choosing to come outside and to be playing out the front with friends rather than being on the screen. Mm. So I think the, the important thing is, of course, there's a whole amazing world through screens and there will always be children who choose that. Uh, or sometimes choose that, but children need the choice. At the moment, they don't have the choice. Um, so, right. of course, they're indoors. Of course, you know, this is what's going to be what they're doing all the time. Um, but if they had the choice, I think we would see things be different. Mm, that That's an interesting way to put it. So, and just to allay anxieties of any uh, vulnerable people or unwell people, that when the streets are blocked... Mm. Um, I suppose the emergency vehicles do have permission to come through yes. if, if it's needed. Yes, absolutely. And actually, the way that we suggest doing it is um, the streets are only closed for that, for that couple of hours, just through traffic. So cars that are wanting to drive through. If you live on that road, um, the stewards at either end of the road, if you come back from the shops in your car, the stewards will walk you to where you want to park at walking pace so to make sure everybody's safe so it's not about saying oh you know everybody's got to move their cars and if you live on that road you can't drive it that's not realistic in a way to to wanting this to be to fit in with people's lives so right. cars can come in and out and absolutely emergency vehicles of course you know it's about community and caring for everybody um not just you know just for children Right. Very helpful. And lastly, um, if people took up this idea, having listened to you and mm. wanted to get involved, what would be your uh, advice for them? Well, we've got a really brilliant website, if I say so myself, <laughs> uh, at www.playingout.net, which has kind of our story and everything about play streets, how to do them. We provide loads of help, like we give you the example letters that you can send to the local authority, example letters for your neighbours, because it's really important to talk to all your neighbours. Um, there's lots of practical help on there, but also if you just want to sort of, if you just think, yeah, I, I care about this, but I, I don't really know what I want to do or I don't think I want to do that, that thing, you could just sign up to our mailing list because we're always sending out 
stories and inspiration and just things to kind of keep the idea alive and um you know it might lead to you just taking your children outside a bit more meeting up with friends in the park or just anything really to give them a bit of that life outside free free play life outside again that's really very helpful. Uh, thank you, Ingrid Skills. That was uh, really very uh, useful for us to listen, and I'm sure for our listeners uh, and um, your efforts that you're making f- to help the children have an outdoor space to play around. Thank you once again. Have a good day, and peace be on you. Oh, peace be on you too, and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Lovely interview there, lovely chat uh, there with Ingrid, and I think uh, that uh, must have made a lot of people wiser. I, I was uh, certainly um, uh, quite uh, pleasantly surprised to uh, to read that you know that this uh, this sort of positive impact can be had just by living in a in a greener space on uh, on children, which is really our next generation. Yes, and I think these ideas, like uh, having streets blocked for lo- for going through traffic and that kind of thing to provide children space, um, I think it's a very simple but practical and useful idea. And I do remember playing out on the street yeah. as a child, and I remember so I. it fond- fondly. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Those, those were fun times, absolutely. Right, let's now straight uh, go to our last guest uh, for the show today, who is Helen Bingham. Helen... Um, uh, Bingham is um, uh, sorry have I made uh, that uh, I think the name of the guest uh, yes can Alison Ogden Newton yes that's our right apologies so, yes uh, our apologies so Alison is the um, uh, is the chief executive sorry sorry yeah, that was the media team there sorry yeah so our, our next guest is uh, the um, Alison Ogden Newton, who is the CEO of Keep Britain Tidy. Alison is the chief executive of Keep Britain Tidy, where she champions environmental causes through media engagement and participation in events. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Um, thanks very much for having me on. Good morning. Good morning, Alison. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, tell us about Keep Britain Tidy. How are you, do- how are you keeping Britain tidy? Uh, well, we're certainly doing our best. So- we were founded in 1954, so this is our 70th year, by the um, fantastic women of the Women's Institute because they recognised that litter was becoming a problem even way back then. Obviously a much, much bigger problem now. Um, and we do run um, anti-littering campaigns like the Great British Spring Clean, which I know um, um, many people participate in, um, Buy Nothing New Month and our campaign currently against making related litter. But we also do lots of other um, very important jobs. We run the world's largest environmental education program for children, Eco School, um, which helps millions of children learn about how they can positively impact the environment. Um, and we run green flags for spaces and blue flags for blue spaces for beaches. Um, and a massive volunteer program. We have nearly half a million volunteers who turn out for us every year. Um, particularly during the Great British Spring Clean, so we're we're, we're pretty busy, and um, and parks and green spaces are very much our focus because we're all about improving the environment where people live, uh, helping people make their communities better so they can love where they live. Uh, interesting. Um, can you share with us the importance of green spaces, in particular in the urban environments, and especially in relation to providing space for children for physical activity and therefore helping them with bone strength? Well, absolutely, yes. I mean, this is 
completely fascinating research that's come from um, Hazlitt University in Flanders, um, um, in Belgium, and it it shows that the closer that children live to um, quality green space, the greater their bone density, and conversely, the further they live away from green space, um, the, the less dense their bones and the less healthy that they are. This marries with the, what we've always known at Keep Britain Tidy, which is that um, it's incredibly important, particularly for the health of young children, to be to to live near green space. And we've campaigned for many years now for everybody to have green quality green space within 10 minutes of where they live, because we know it makes an enormous social um, uh, and and health impact, particularly on families with with young children. Um, but this is a real challenge because our parks are under threat because of funding cuts, because of the pressure on local authority funding. And although our Green Flag Award awards about 2,000 green flags to the best green spaces in the country, um, we we want everybody to be able to live near a green flag space because we know it makes a vital difference. We kind of found out about that, didn't we, during lockdown. We, we found that our green space was a lifeline. But... Um, we seem to be beginning to forget that, and particularly for our children, it is a real loss to their development and their health if we don't protect those absolutely vital green spaces. Yes, um, very important. So is your organisation, Keep Britain Tidy, focused on the access to green space specifically for children, or is your programme focused at all ages? Well, it is for all ages. I mean, we... We run a uh, an all-party parliamentary group in the House of Commons for um, for parks and green spaces because we really want to take this debate into Parliament and make sure that all parliamentarians are aware of just how vital that green space is for um, everybody, but especially for children. Um, and so we, we, we campaign very hard and we try and get the message across at all levels that, um, that this is... <laughs> You know, the, the Victorians who fundamentally built the infrastructure of our parks and green spaces um, knew just how important it was to people. And sometimes I do think that we forget that. Um, and it is our job at Keep Britain Tidy to keep the message um, loud and clear that this is essential, particularly for people who are living in cities and particularly for people who are living in deprived areas. We find that with about 10 um, about 62% of Londoners, for instance, live within 10 minutes of a park, but that drops dramatically outside London and it gets down to about a third of people. Only a third of people live within 10 minutes of green space, which is a real, um, uh, it, it compromises the quality of life that people experience. Um, so it is our job. We, we do award the green flag for the best space, but we think everybody should have um, access to a green flag park. So. Um, I think it's always been an important part of the work that we do, but given the current circumstances and given how much of a threat our green space is under, I think that it's never been more vital. And um, in a country where winter brings shorter days and darker evenings, um, people being at school at work, uh, school during the day and at work during the day, um, is there some kind of a part of your program to make safety a priority in the parks? Because after dark, some people hesitate going into these green spaces. 
Well, they do, and we're aware of that. Um, we, we've done research recently, particularly for um, young girls and, and women, um, and found that uh, 13% of, of girls and women really um, question whether or not they can access parks, as you quite rightly point out, particularly during the winter months, because they're worried about safety. That's about three and a half million women and young girls. Unfortunately, that figure rises to a staggering 40% in 25-34-year-olds, um, which is really sad. So those are women who are thinking twice about going to park because of safety. So we're working on a safety blueprint for parks um, and working internationally with other um, experts in green space to come up with solutions that will make women in particular, women and young girls in particular, feel safer because it's absolutely vital that everybody accesses their green space and makes the most of it. And of course, the one factor that makes all women feel safer in you know space is the, pre- uh, is the presence of other women. Um, so you know it, it is vitally important that we we make sure that women do feel safe enough and are safe enough to go into green space and make the most of it. Because if they don't, then they're really really missing out. And that's vitally important, we think, um, particularly to the health of young girls, because if they don't get access to green space, they aren't going to develop bone density, but they're also not going to be as healthy as, as their male counterparts. Uh, and those that don't live um, as close to green space and have access to it. So all of this is about equality. The World Health Organization recognized how vital access to green space was. And they also told us emphatically that um, it is more important and yet less uh, 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 available to those in areas of deprivation. So conversely, people who need it the most are, are having more restricted access to it. And this is a real, you know, this is a real story of inequality and, and one that Keep and Tidy really wants to address. Yes, uh, thank you for that. And lastly, how do you envision the future of your efforts and the future of green spaces? Are you optimistic? Well, I wouldn't say I was optimistic in the short term because of funding cuts and because of the terrible pressure that green space is under. I think that's a real um, difficulty that we envisage and why it's so important for our decision makers to understand just how important it is for us all. We run a campaign in the summer called Love Parks where we encourage everybody to talk particularly on social media about how important their park is to them. But, you know, parks are incredibly important in the round for all of us. We know environmentally that um, a green space operates at a temperature that's between 5 and 8 degrees lower than the rest of the area that surrounds it. Parks also act as sinks for um, rainfall. These areas are keeping our cities cool. They're providing um, drainage when there's rainfall. They are, in fact part of the essential equilibrium that's going to prevent us from experiencing the worst effects of global warming. So moving forward, as inevitably it seems like the climate is going to change further and we're all going to have to experience much, much hotter summers, how close you live to a green space will make a big difference to the quality of your life and potentially to to your, to your health in quite a dramatic way. So um, we really feel invigorated that our job is incredibly important on all of these matters. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. But all of these matters are terribly important to all of us, even if we don't know it. Um, and um, it's our job, Keep Grip Tidy, to get the message across and make sure that we do everything we can 
to protect those green spaces and make sure that everybody has equal access to them. Mm, um, absolutely, and uh, totally agree with you about the importance of uh, safe green space available to all population. Uh, in fact, uh, it is us who would thank you uh, for your time and your um, agreement to come over to our show. Thank you very much for sharing your views and we wish you the best for the efforts that you're putting in for a very noble cause. So thank you and peace be on you. Yeah, thank you very much and peace be on you. Thank you. Excellent uh, uh, talks there by uh, the two um, ladies. Uh, Dr. Shakil, coming towards the end of the show here, um, if I can ask you, uh, given your expertise in this area as well, what is the relationship, if any, between cleanliness and mental health? And also, uh, perhaps if you can shed light on what uh, the Promised Messiah uh, maybe some, maybe uh, beyond him, actually wrote about the linkage between um, body and soul. Uh, once again, thank you. You've raised a very important point. I mean, firstly, between health and cleanliness and health and being able to have uh, physical activity mm. and being in between health and access to natural environment. I mean, there's, there's ample amount of scientific studies. Right that have demonstrated that our health is directly related to the physical activity, our muscle tone, our cardiovascular system, our mental health, all benefit from physical activity. And uh, we've had two guests, the first one talking about open spaces for children, safe and open spaces for children's play, and the second guest have spoken about the uh, access to green spaces for all ages. Mm. So. Um, this is in line with uh, how we understand Islamic uh, teaching that guides us, that we've got to look after our physical health in a way that is scientifically uh, demonstrable um, in terms of not just physical activity, but also what we eat. Right. And that is why there are instructions in many religions, but including the Holy Quran, about what is appropriate to eat and what is, to be, uh, what is forbidden or not appropriate to be eaten. Mm. Um, and without going into details, there is infection prevention there. Mm. There is health benefits there in terms of having a, uh, a balanced diet. And science uh, supports this notion very clearly. And it's common knowledge now. Now, coming to the issue of mental health as well, physical activity as well as access to natural environment, we now have increasing amount of evidence that if we are exercising regularly, we are actually having in the neurotransmission in our neurons, the brain cells, uh, resettle or retune in a way that relaxes us. So a lot of stress can be washed away by doing physical exercise. And that is why you see people who have experienced this idea that they want to go and do a bit of sport after work before they get back home, sure. a swim or a sport or a gym uh, session. Right. But in fact, um, those who've done it would say that if they don't do it, they feel uncomfortable the rest of the evening. So that's the other thing. You mentioned about the promised Messiah, uh, yes. may peace be on him, who's the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association or Ahmadiyya movement within Islam. And he has very interestingly, and again picking up from the teachings of the Holy Quran, uh, spoken about the relationship between the physical side 
and then our health, taking on to our psychological well-being, which then he relates to our ability to be morally disciplined and ultimately that this gives us a foundation for spiritual development which according to the Holy Quran means an improved relationship between the human being and the Creator. So if we see that linkage that the promised Messiah, may peace be on him, has uh, written about, what we are speaking of is that uh, our physical activity and looking after our health and hygiene is essential through those steps to ultimately lead to our uh, spiritual strength. And that is uh, why we as Ahmadi Muslims have uh, regular uh, activities within our community that offer our uh, members, including young children, for physical sport. And as you know now that we hold international tournaments for men and women, um, teams travel from all over the world, come over to UK because at the moment this is the um, the headquarters because of the Khalifa of Islam residing in, in UK. Um, and we have tournaments of cricket and netball and badminton and uh, volleyball and many um, similar events. In fact, I think the ladies netball and volleyball teams from from many countries are coming in for the tournament just uh, later this month. So there is a lot of emphasis on physical activity and hygiene. In fact, it just reminded me of a saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of so God be so. on him, that he said that uh, cleanliness is half of our faith. Yeah. So it's essential for us. If we aren't clean, we're not going to be mentally clean. Mm. And if we aren't mentally clean, we're not going to be able to be mentally disciplined enough to exercise higher standards of morality because that requires mental discipline. So, so you're saying actually that physical cleanliness has a direct linkage with mental cleanliness as well. That is right. And that's what uh, the promised Messiah, may mm. peace be on him, explained to us. And, uh, and, one is, and, and, and that one is not possible without the other. No, no. I mean, we can experience it within ourselves right. that let's think of an example of someone who's fallen ill. Now, of course, getting up and having a shower every day becomes a little bit difficult for someone who's severely ill. Right. But at the same time, that lethargy, that weakness, that relative uncleanliness, hmm. it also leads to a little bit of a reduced discipline in terms of how they would interact with the world, because mentally they're subdued, that person. Correct. Similarly, if somebody's uh, used to being an athlete or doing regular physical exercise, if they don't do it, you would know from their experience that they feel less able to be conducive in a social way. So people who have experienced this uh, would know what uh, the relationship between physical health and mental health or mental discipline means. But ultimately, this mental discipline then also provides us a foundation for spiritual growth. Without morality, you don't have spirituality. Sure. Excellent. Let me close uh, the show by uh, with a quote um, from uh, the book called Ways of the Seeker, written by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad, who was the second head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And he wrote in that book, and I quote, A child should be kept neat and tidy and should be properly cleaned after stools, 
some of you might say that this particular chore, be- chore belongs to the mother. This is true, but it equally is true that the mother will perform it properly only if the father is properly oriented in this regard. How can you look after the inner inner cleanliness of the child if you do not look after its external cleanliness? Let the child have a clean body. Its impact on his mind will be great. As a consequence, the child will come to have a clean mind and will become immune to sins which are caused by uncleanliness." Unquote. So this uh, is absolutely what um, you were talking about as well. And uh, But I must stress that this was written uh, probably a hundred years ago. Uh, and, you know, science has only proved what, what we're just talking about in the last few decades. Yes, that is right. And just to add to the our second speaker, who, um, when they spoke about uh, spring clean efforts of keeping Britain tidy organization, I just wanted to say that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in all the countries where they're established, they run these kind of street cleaning park cleaning, New Year morning cleaning. People had partied the 31st of December and left litter on the streets. And then here we are with Ahmadi Muslim members in the morning of the 1st of January after the morning prayers going out and cleaning that thing to help support our government. Every year without fail, absolutely. And in in many countries. So that's like trying to live uh, our teachings, but also trying to play our role to support our countries where we live. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Shakil, for that. And with that, we come towards the end of today's show. Thank you, Sarah, thank you so very much for joining us. As we wrap up the show, we would like you to stay in white, uh, stay tuned for more exciting episodes, and um, uh, and there will be another live show tomorrow morning as well. I must thank our producer Taimina Chima, as well as Sophia Atik, uh, researchers Safa Ahmed, Faisal Mansoor, and Amar Kamal. Excellent supporters always from Mr. Tahir in the tech room, and to our listeners for joining us this morning. Thank you very much once again. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. of Islam Radio. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. Take note how the Holy Prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end, in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, 
he endures such hardship and suffering as increase from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness. Not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and impostor to suffer through. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussion.